Welcome to Montreal Startups, a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talk to a former Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, a Canada Top 40 Under 40, and founder of multiple high-profile tech startups in Montreal, Hamnet Hill. The rise of the internet in the mid-90s was a revolutionary period on a global scale. But when conversations of that time period arise, our thoughts are immediately drawn to companies in Silicon Valley and their efforts to capitalize on this new technology known as the internet. As the co-founder of one of the city's most high-profile tech companies in the late 90s, Hamnet is literally at the forefront of the emerging tech scene in Montreal. And having been in the heart of the dot-com craze, he's able to basically paint a picture of what that time period was like in the city. The well-documented roller coaster ride of the internet leading into the early 2000s did not escape this city. And while the final outcome has a happy ending, everything in between was quite turbulent. And based on Hamnet's family background, a life of entrepreneurship was inevitable for the Calgary native. I grew up in Calgary along with eventually um, a whole bunch of other siblings. I'm the eldest of eight Totally. Total. Eight siblings. Eight, eight, eight kids altogether, yeah. And you're um, the eldest. And I'm the eldest. So I've got a, a big family. We grew up in Calgary. And then I sort of um, left Calgary in my sort of late teens and lived in the States for a bit and ended up going to school in the States. Uh, Where'd my, you go to school in the States? I went to school in Montana, actually. I went to Montana State University. Yeah. I uh, was interested in a bunch of stuff, but I thought I was interested in sort of human services, social work, that kind of thing. And I got down at school and I was interested in lots of other stuff. And why Why Montana out of all um, states? It was close to, I mean, interesting. I don't know if this is, is particularly relevant, but I didn't finish high school. I left high school really early. So I left high school, uh, I think the last grade I officially completed was ninth grade. And so I, 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 I didn't finish high school. What was that all about? Traveled a lot. I just Traveled a lot, didn't really get along well with, with uh, authority figures. <laughs> I was a, a wild spirit. Um, so yeah, so I lived in, uh, in different states in the U.S. So um, universities in, in the states were able to take you if you did well in your ACTs. So I did SATs and ACTs and did well in those. And so I ended up going to school in Montana. Uh, they also had a program that I was really interested in at the time. So that's why I ended up there. And what did you study there? At, at, so I started, I, I studied a bunch of stuff. I started in human services, which was sort of social work-ish, and then transferred into psychology, and then ultimately ended up in, in business. So um, the program I was in was a Bachelor of Science in, in Business Administration, and, and uh, accounting was my specialty. But I had a minor in psychology. Okay. Um, so you graduate from University of Montana, or uh, this university in Montana, and you got your whole career ahead of you. What do you decide to do next? Yeah, I mean, we had been, like, growing up, we were very 
sort of business and entrepreneurial focused, I guess. Like I had been in, I was always looking for a way to make a buck, whether it was a lemonade stand or a bicycle fixing business or making pre-lit logs with other newspapers that you could sell. Like I was always looking for uh, a new way to make a buck and, and conversations around the dinner table were always about businesses as well. Uh, my dad's a, a CA and was in public practice for a lot of years. And a lot of his clients were, uh, were small businesses. And so we'd talk about those. But then also growing up in Alberta, particularly in sort of the, the 70s and 80s, the, the Alberta Stock Exchange and the oil field and the resources sector was, was a, a big get-rich-quick kind of scheme all the time. And so there was always a new, a new penny stock or new business that, that we'd be talking about. So was a, business was always sort of a conversation around the, around the table. So that was always an interest. Um, and then when I went to university, I was interested in lots of other stuff, but ultimately decided that um, the business and, and basically getting a trade out of university, i.e. accounting, would give me a base and I could do a lot of things from that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was running a business in, in university to sort of pay my way through university. What was that when business? Student lands. It was called uh, Pegasus Multimedia, which is what it was. But this is sort of back in the early 90s, even before sort of PowerPoint and, and sort of stuff that take for granted today. And I started doing a multimedia presentations or PowerPoint decks with flying logos kind of thing for a couple of businesses. Uh, and then word got out that I could do these things. And so I started getting either corporate training, investor relations presentations. And so I would get, you know, get those gigs. And initially I was doing them myself, but then ultimately figured that there were other kids that I knew at university who would do it. And so I would sub a lot of the work out to them, um, find work for them, and, and was able to, to finance most of them. Like my last three years of school was financed that way um, by doing these things. So that sort of was my, I guess, first official business. Business, yeah. Official. Yeah. Um, oh, there were lots of other sort of making money schemes growing up. Yeah. Um, but then when my, uh, my father was, had left uh, public practice as a CA and had gone in to work with a client, um, Sport Check, which was at, at the time was was owned by a German conglomerate, and uh, they were looking to sell it. And so my my dad was uh, hooked up with a guy named John Frizzani, who was an ex football player. And uh, John had a bunch of sort of small footprint shoe stores and malls. It was called Frizzani Locker Room, and they sort of put those two businesses together and created the Frizzani Group. And so uh, along that path, they, they took a public, you know, they raised some money, and they were pretty small still. Um, they had Sport Check and they had the Frisani locker rooms, but uh, Sport Experts, who was probably five or six times bigger than they were, was being put up for sale. I think Provigo owned it or somebody owned it. Um, and there were a few different parties competing to buy it, and they were able to sort of get in there and put an offer on the table and, and win it, and then go out and raise the money. And, and so they bought sort of David and Goliath, you know, David bought Goliath. Right. And uh, my father had come out here to then try and start integrating the businesses. He was the CFO. The Forzani Group was, was head up here. Forzani Group was based in Calgary, but Sport Experts was here. And so they needed to integrate the businesses. Um, the Sport Expert, which was also the franchise for Sport Experts and Podium Sports and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, and so Hammy moved out here to work on that integration. Uh, 
And so I would, you know, I mean, last year of school or so, I'd come up here and visit. And you know, I was, yeah. Like, how how old were you at that time when you see your dad getting involved in this kind of transaction? And- well, he was. I mean, he was involved in transactions like that. You know, um, sort of growing up. I mean, this particular one was sort of, I guess, when I was in my. Uh, I think he got involved with Forzani Group in the late '80s. So I probably would have been in my l- late teens, kind of, in my teens before university. And then I think this transaction happened uh, towards. Uh, towards the end of my college, so you know, early twenties. You know. So, so you're getting a lot of incredible exposure to a, a huge merger between these two massive companies. Is that starting to forge your your or continue to forge your your business interest and and pave the way for your career going forward? Um, I mean, I think it was one of the aspects. I think just being around business generally, you know, like we had um, exposure to a lot of different aspects of business, a big business like that, and. You know the financing process around an IPO and all those kinds of things, but also small businesses. You know, like when um, my father had a couple of attempted ventures at starting his own small businesses while he was also a CA. He was involved in a bunch of real estate stuff, so we really had a, 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 a taste of all kinds of stuff, from mining to real estate to franchises to some of the big business and retail. Um, so we got a taste, and those were the conversations were, were sort of around. Um, but I, my, the, the rest of my family had moved out here with, um, with my dad, obviously. Um, so I would come up and visit for Christmas and stuff and sort of fell in love with Montreal. And so when I was finishing up university, my plan was to go and do, uh, you know, go and do a law MBA sort of as my next step and sort of go down more of a professional track. Um, but decided, you know, that when, when I was visiting Montreal, my brother was trying to start some businesses and I'd start helping him to sort of do the business end of it. My brother's much sort of more of a technologist than I am uh, and decided that I really wasn't in the mood to do some more you know, years of articling and, um, and another four or five years of school. And, and so I decided to say screw it. And, Understandably so. Yeah, and, and Montreal was a fun place to be in your 20s. And, and uh, uh, so yeah, so I, so I moved up here and helped my brother start his first business and, and my first business in Montreal. So where where does your brother fall in the one to eight rank? He's two. He's two. He's two. So he's right below yeah, you. Yeah, he's right. He's right. Uh, yeah, right younger than me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's about eighteen months younger than me. Okay. Yeah, so we're pretty close. So what was that first business that you're getting involved with here in Montreal with your brother? Computers and technology had been part of our lives pretty early. Like my my dad brought home um, early personal computers. So we had a Vic twenty and a Commodore sixty four. Um, and then the first Mac, like the skinny Mac, when it first came out, he brought it home. And Austin really embraced them. I was around them and I liked them, but Austin really got into it. And he had, I think, started his first BBS at, at 12 years old with a single 1200 baud modem. I mean, he was, um, he was really into technology early, early. And, and the really mid to connected. late 90s at this point. No, I mean, this would have been 80s. This was starting uh, 81 or 82. Like, because when 80, 84 was when the first Mac came out and, and my dad brought it home sort of when it first came out. So, so early, early on, yeah. Austin was born in 73, so it would have been 80, 45 that he had his first BBS. So, so yeah, so Austin was, was hugely involved in technology. And you know, if you ever have a conversation with him, he can tell you more about his, his sort of early years as a hacker. But he was very, very involved in technology. And, and I was um, always a little bit more interested in, in, on the business side. So he was working for uh, a Macintosh dealer here in town in Montreal, 
uh, called Microserve, which was sort of a big Macintosh-based PC retailer before Apple shut all those down. Um, and wanted to start a BBS, but more of a, a GUI-based BBS. So rather than sort of the command line um, BBSs for bulletin board systems for, for nerds, he wanted to do something more AOL-like um, in Canada. And so it started going down the path of building that. And I was helping him work on the financial modeling and the business plan and the marketing plan and, and all that kind of stuff um, remotely while I was at school. And then decided to come and help him. But when I think it was it was fall of fall of '94 is when sort of that Wired episode issue came out that had Mozilla on the, the cover, and it was really I think marked the start of really consumer internet. Like it was clear that before that the internet was really um, academic primarily. Like you could get access to it, but and government. Yeah, it was government and, and universities mostly. But then people had started to quasi-legally pipe into it and do more commercial stuff, but it was still really pre-commercial internet. But when we saw the, the browser coming out and saw that it was really changing from this more technical command line telenet sort of uh, uh, networking that you really had to be sophisticated to something that was much, much easier, we were like, okay, forget this BBS, we're just going to sell access. And so we, we launched that ISP in spring of, spring of 95, late 94. Uh, my brother raised the money for that one, so he uh, he convinced his boss at the computer dealer to uh, to invest, and my dad matched whatever he could get invested in. Um, got a government loan for the rest, and then we we were off. But we did it with with next to no money. I mean, I think total invested in was uh, sixty, seventy, maybe a hundred thousand, including the government loan. Uh, and we made up for it with with sweat, um, maybe a little bit of smarts, and we had to figure out how to be able to build that business on the cheap. Um, and so it was, it was a very wild two or three years. I think the, from start to finish on that, by the time we had our exit, it was about three years. But there were a lot of people that were getting into it with a lot more money. We, um, I think, what what made us, I mean, we were sleeping in the server rooms. Like the way it was really Wild West. So we had the foresight to get an office that was the old Eastern Airlines. Okay, look it up, an old old airline in Canada <laughs> um, that had a whole bunch of copper telephone lines coming into it. So uh, the that ISP game was all dial-up internet. You know, so people were calling in on modems, and and you needed to have access to lots of copper lines to be able to turn on phone lines. So. We had a good location, and then what everybody, a lot of people were doing, were running around and basically buying consumer U.S. robotics modems, and then plugging them in and stacking them up and putting fans on them to keep them from from overheating. Like it was really um, wild west. Um, everybody was fighting for for modem supply. It was a really wild um, experience. And the place where we focused, because we were. Uh, we were sort of financially strapped. We couldn't hire a lot of people. We focused on really building smart systems operationally that allowed us to get users up and going very quickly and very easily. So people would sign up. Um, the receptionist would take their credit card information. We built a billing system. I mean, before that, there were no real ways to do billing systems very well. It was very complicated to do. And then all the provisioning systems to go and turn on, create an email account, create a, a newsreader account for, for NNTP, for all of these different sort of things that came with an internet subscription. 
And so we were able to do that with what a lot of other folks had to have 10 or 15 staff to, uh, to, to get a new customer set up and get billing done and get them technically on board. We were able to do that with one person. So it was one of the places where we were, I think, clever. Uh, and then we did a lot of sort of clever marketing stuff where because we didn't have big dollars to spend on advertising, we, we spent a lot of it on, on working and doing. We did the first websites for like Mix 96 and for CJAD and, and, and through that we got a lot of, of advertising play. So that was sort of our, our angle and, and I guess a year in or a year and a half in, we sort of had emerged by, not, by the middle of 95, there was 100 or 140 different ISPs that had opened up. Like it was uh, a hugely competitive market. But we had merged as tied for second in the city <laughs> with, I think, a grand total of about 2,000 subscribers, which was a lot at the time. And then met our, our competition, who we were tied with at a trade show, and decided that we were going to merge the two businesses. And so we merged um, that business that we had started, which was called Infobon Online Services, with another company called Accent, which was a couple of guys um, who were a little bit older than us and ha had had already sort of their first entrepreneurial success. So this was their second really shot, and this was our first shot. Merged those two businesses together and then raised some money and, and bought a few other, um, bought a company in Toronto, bought a company in Quebec City, and then just started to market the hell out of it and, and grew it to be almost, almost 100,000 subscribers, um, uh, sort of by mid-2007, end of 2007. Uh, so it was a real crazy, crazy complicated business that was under hyper, hyper growth. Um, by that point, the, the telcos had started to get into it. And so they were playing a lot of games and making it difficult to get new phone lines, um, charging big dollars because their ISP Simpatico was, was starting to try and get customers. Uh, and so um, it got really difficult to raise money. The business was tough. Uh, and ultimately, we sold that business in, I want to say, I want to say middle of 97, you know, 97 or 98. We sold that business uh, and had a successful exit and, and got out. So that was our first. That was your first experience in the technology world. Yeah, for a real, yeah. for a real tech startup, aside from sort of that services business, that was our first real, real business. And it was wild. So I was CFO of that business. Austin was CTO. Our partners have gone on to... Like a, a lot of the ecosystem that exists today has ripples from that and our competition. You know, like our, our competitors, our big competitors were um, uh, Generation Net, which was Garner Bornstein, uh, who's gone on to be a, a really successful Montreal um, entrepreneur in technology. He had Airborne, which was a big Montreal success. Um, other big competition was Odyssey Internet, which was uh, Dominic First and his brother, who have gone on to do some fintech stuff and now have a fintech accelerator in town, First Capital. And so like a lot of the people that, that have subsequently gone on, so it was, it was one of the early generations of, of tech founders in Montreal. What, what was it like working with your brother at, at that time? Is that, is, do you recommend that experience to other, other entrepreneurs? I mean, it really, de it really depends on, I think, the, the relationship people have with brothers and or family. Like, you know, I think it can be a double-edged sword. There's some things that are awesome about partnering with family when it comes to startups. I mean, trust is, I think, fundamental between partners in any business or between a team in any business. Uh, and so I think you, you can 
Uh, you can short circuit the time it takes to build trust when it's your family. The flip side is you can get all kinds of family dynamics and then get in the way as well. And so if, um, and oftentimes, you know, family businesses can lead to nepotism. You know, we're not holding each other accountable for, for, for real responsibility. So there, there's a, it is a fine line and it's a, it, it can be a bit um, precarious to get into businesses with, with, with family members. Um, but it really depends on a case-by-case -case basis. As, as investors, investors don't like to invest in, in, in family, family businesses, businesses and no. when there's family there. Um, the, you know, the danger is, or the concern is, is A, just how tight that team is, but that it, people don't necessarily make the best decisions for the business. Sometimes family decisions or family bonds will overtake taking the best right. decisions. It complicates the, yeah. the, yeah. the field a little bit. That's right. So it's fair to say that your first experience in, in the technology world is, is a successful one, I guess, right? I mean, with, with everything that you guys went through during that period. Um, and then you eventually sold the business. Um, what's your next step? I mean, you're, you're still in Montreal. Your, your family's still in Montreal. Was your plan always to stay here and continue into, into new ventures in this city? Or did you ever explore moving somewhere else at that point? You know, I don't know that I planned it out all that far when I, when I moved to Montreal. I was, let me go give this a shot. I think once I was here and I had started to build a network and, and my brother was there and we had successfully partnered on that last business, um, there wasn't really a serious consideration of leaving. I was having fun. You know, I like Montreal. Uh, so, so there wasn't a serious consideration of moving. So it was really a question of, of what we were going to do next. And we left. So we sold the business. It was sold to another big Montreal firm. It was sold to a company called uh, Impact Media, or not Impact Media, Impact, um, which was run by Brian Edwards, who's a real legend in the Canadian technology scene, like a, a real, real legend. He, he built one of, Canada's, one of Canada's bigger internet businesses. Uh, ultimately, it was BC Emerges was the business that, that he built. So he, he was in the process of spinning off some, some parts of, the business, of Bell's business in technology, um, and he rolled... Uh, impact into it um, and created BC Emerges. And so we were acquired as part of that process as he was building this big internet business. Um, you know, when we were, we were locked up in that, in, we were escrowed in that stock. So as they, as they did that, we were fortunate. Like, it wasn't a huge, huge home run when we sold. It was a, it was a good exit. Um, but all of the people that sold were locked up in those shares, and then those shares sort of went through the roof over the next couple of years. So what, turned, what would have been a, a decent exit turned into a great exit for all of our investors and, and everybody that was involved. Um, so we got out pretty quickly because both my brother and I, uh, my brother and I weren't really corporate guys, you know, and so we really um, didn't think that, that we'd fit great at BCE, you but know, you so but you had a you had a period of time you had to stay at the company in your contract after the, the not really the like we were fortunate that our our other two partners who uh, who both are, are legends as well in the in the the business and tech community in Montreal um, they stayed you know they were older they were a little more polished than we were and so they stayed with the business there um, and I think uh, it worked for everybody I think you know like our two partners were uh, one was a guy named Roy Olson. Uh, he and, and, his, and his partner um, was Joel Leonoff, who's the CEO of Paysafe now, and was previously um, involved with Mitch Garber as they did Poker Stars and, and a number of other things. Right. So they both went and stayed with BC Emergis and then subsequently um, spun some things out of, out of BC Emergis 
that became Surefire Commerce, that became Optimal Payments, uh, and then ultimately has become PaySafe. So that's sort of like that other side of the business. But they stuck around, and, and we were we were able to leave pretty quickly once the transaction was done. Uh, and so we sort of sat back and said, okay, what do we want to do? We really wanted to do a new startup. Hey everyone, just a quick word from our sponsor, Breather. Breather's mission is to empower companies with private workspace that helps them meet their full potential. Growing rapidly, Breather has a network of over 400 workspaces across 10 global markets available on demand for hours, days, or months at a time with no membership or subscription fee. Visit breather.com to learn more. So you guys are looking at all these these major acquisitions that are going on in the tech space now, and and really this is still starting to pave the way for uh, in North America what the tech space is starting to look like now, right? Yeah. All these 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 fast startups that are that are emerging and then getting acquired by the bigger players, and you guys are looking at this from a distance and saying, this has got to be us next. Yeah, well, we started to see these these new companies being created and acquired very quickly, and really. Um, thought that we wanted to do one, I mean, at a more basic level. But I think more broadly, we saw, and, and I got Austin very much. I mean, Austin's really, and still is, a real technology visionary. Like, Austin really sort of sees into the future. Um, I think anybody who spent any time with him would, would vouch for that. Um, and so as, as we thought about some of the big, big problems that were going to emerge in this world where everybody was connected, we wanted to not just build a business that um, built a product that would flip and we could make some money. You know, we had a little bit of money. We wanted to do something really substantial and try and build something that would have a real impact. I mean, it sounds like hubris and a little grandiose, which it probably is both, but something that would, would really impact society in a big way. And so the, we also had come, sort of come, we were young, and I think as often as the case with, it's not uncommon for young um, business and entrepreneurial-minded guys to, to sort of have a bit of a libertarian bent. We were very sort of philosophically had a bit of a, a Randian, libertarian sort of bent in view of the world. And, and Austin sort of saw that through a technology lens as well. And so Austin had always really been interested in, you know, in crypto and, you know, science fiction around that stuff. And so, you know, the big scary future that we saw and, and Austin really was able to describe and, and communicate really well was as everybody was online that ultimately any shred of personal privacy was going to disappear. And that, um, that the ability for businesses and government to know absolutely everything about us was going to become pervasive. And that that was going to lead to um, some pretty dystopian impact on on humanity. Uh, and so Austin was really, I think, incredibly able to communicate that, but, but also was able to lead as we put together sort of a vision for how could you solve that with technology? You know, what technology is out there that could make that privacy, um, build that privacy into the internet as it was expanding? 
And so the, the, the problem was, and it was interesting at the time, so this is, you know, 97, 98, 99, um, but as all the news media was talking about this new thing, the internet, and, and the big boogeyman that people kept talking about was privacy. Like if you go back and you look at the cover of Time and, and just everywhere, people were talking about privacy. There was and that big, hasn't changed 20 years later. It, it hasn't, and, and it's funny, like it's, it's Austin and we were so prescient into what is the, what is the world today. Um, it has emerged. We, we did not succeed. Um, that is the world today, and, and that has happened. But you know, at the time, every survey, Pew did a huge research study that said you know, the biggest concern that people have in getting online was privacy. Like Everybody was terrified about their privacy. Um, like it, was, it was scoring off the charts. The number one reason that someone won't get online is because they're afraid of their privacy. And so we set about building a business that would solve that problem. And so... You know, instead of using contracts or privacy policies or, or policies or, or trust me, we set out about building cryptographically assured privacy into the infrastructure of the internet. Um, and so we had we put together um, a team of some of the most brilliant, sort of high-profile uh, crypto um, cypherpunk, crypto libertarian folks that were out there and pulled them together with this vision of let's build some products and technologies that could help preserve individual individual liberty and individual privacy on, on the internet. Uh, and then went out about raising, raising money for that business. And so the, the initial projects were, the initial focus was a consumer bent where we were building an anonymous IP overlay network. So being able to set up servers in all different jurisdictions around the world, basically proxy servers. Um, but then we designed a, a, an IP protocol called, called Anonymous IP that would wrap IP packets with layers of public key cryptography so that um, as they bounced through these different networks, uh, a layer would be unwrapped and it would get passed on, but ultimately um, once it hit the second server, the server didn't know where it came from nor where it was going. So it completely anonymized traffic and allowed people to have both security of content, but also security and privacy of source and destination of their, of their IP. So we built that underlying network and then built a consumer app. So people could install this app and then you picked a, a pseudonym, who you wanted to be today. And uh, and as you browsed, as you emailed, as you did everything, it was all anonymous. It was completely, you know. So you would have an identity, but it's Bob the Builder or, or whatever it is. Right. Um, and you could decide to disclose how much you wanted to, but everything was everything was pseudonymous. It couldn't be tracked to you, or to you personally. Um, it couldn't be tracked to your IP address, and couldn't be tracked amongst different websites. All of those different things. So we really put it in people's hands, and included a full email service that did that, as well as a web browsing service. Hmm. Um, and how do you monetize something like that? Well, <laughs> we didn't, ultimately. Um, there was all kinds of attention about it. Like the, like the, the, because it was such a, a big issue in, in the public mind and in the, in the media at that point, we got a lot of attention um, and raised a lot of money. And there was a lot of critical acclaim for it. You know, the first products we launched were... were um, were run all kinds of awards and people loved and the, the technical folks loved it because it wasn't trust me security, it was, uh, it was real 
open security with security cred. And the plan was to just charge consumers for it. You know, I think the first product was 50 or 60 bucks a year. And, and um, there were hundreds of thousands of people that had signed up on the website to get it as soon as it came out. And when we first launched it, um, like I said, won lots of awards, sold the first couple hundred thousand like very quickly. Um, but then that was about it. You know? Fizzled off from there. It, it, well, we, so you said this is the late 90s, so I think we all know what's about to happen next, right? How did that translate into the dot-com boom and bust at the same time? Yeah, so the, the boom, you know, I'd say that the boom was sort of, call it 97, 98, 99, 2000 started to peak, and then middle of 2001, it was coming down the other end. Right. Um, so we raised, we raised an A round, you know, I think our, our A round... We did, we did a seed, we paid for the seed ourselves because you know, we had proceeds and we could take it quite far. And so we did a bunch of stuff that, that really increased our profile incredibly. Uh, like, so, like what? Like there, one, of the, one of the big early ones, well, a couple of things. We, we hired a couple of people that had super high profiles. So we hired, um, our CTO was a guy named Ian, Dr. Ian Goldberg, who was um, at Berkeley and had gotten famous by breaking Netsca- Netscape's encryption scheme. He found the flaws in it and opened it up. And so he was, he was a star, but also at Berkeley in Soda Hall, the, the comp sci sort of section of Berkeley, he was sort of known and thought of as one of the greatest minds in, in, in certainly in security and cryptography and math. But so we brought him on. You brought you know? him on the team. You brought, you brought, him, you brought team. him here to Montreal. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, and so there was, a, there was a bunch of sort of key hires we did, but then we did some stunts like, uh, one of the stunts we did, Pentium, uh, the P3 chip came out. So it was a Pentium 3 chip. And the Pentium 3 chip, they were touting that it had this unique ID on it. Um, it all sounds so, so trivial and, and silly now because it's just sort of accepted that that's reality. But uh, they claimed that it could be used for identification, it could be used for authentication, it could be used for these different things. But don't worry, there's no... There's no, uh, there's, no, there's no threat to being used for nefarious purposes. And so we launched a little hack that could, if you came to this website, we'd tell you exactly what your IP address and where you were, and then we launched it, and there was a huge um, PR um, mess and, and hype around the fact that this P3 chip was a, was a digital tracking chip and was gonna steal your privacy. And so we did some stuff like that that got a lot of attention. Um, but also just the fact that we were building anonymity into the internet and that nobody, not the NSA, not the FBI, nobody could find out who was on the other end. And so people love to be able to talk about that. It was controversial and it was, it was, uh, it got a lot of attention. Put you in the spotlight. That's it. I, I, I'm always curious about this. Where, where, where was your office at the time in, in the late nineties? Like where, where does this, you know, high profile tech company set up in Montreal? Yeah, so our first, our very, very first office was um, next to the um, next to the office, uh, the Office Depot on on uh, across from Alexis Neon. But it was just the three of us. But our first real office, we rented a space in the Cooper Building on uh, just below Duluth on St. Lawrence. Okay, and it was sort of a wood floors, you know, old schmutter building that had been converted, and we were we did the which today is sort of standard fare, but we had the espresso bar and people brought their dogs to brought their dogs to work and and all of those kinds of things um, we sort of did all those things that was our first office 
And that's about the time that we raised our A round, which was about 12 US, which at the time was a lot of money for, uh, for a funding round. And it was one of the first times that US VCs had really done anything in Canada. There wasn't really a tech, there, not wasn't really, there was not a, te a technology venture capital industry in Canada at that point. Um, you had venture capital in Canada, but it was more for traditional businesses. Do you remember the, the year, month-ish that you closed that, that A round? I don't. I think it was, I want to say January of 98, but I, I very likely could be wrong. Okay, so you, so you closed an A round on the way up, basically. Mm -hmm. and that was pre-revenue, that was pre-everything. I mean, that was it. You know, we had an initial team, we were coding, we were working, we were just, um, we had profile and attention, but we hadn't really shipped anything yet. You launch the platform, you sign on customers, and then you, you mentioned something that you say you, it just kind of fizzled from there. What, what happens next at that point, especially given what's happening in the tech industry? So it was interesting. So that was actually later that the whole story was written. Like, so we raised our A round. Um, we had just started to maybe launch the code. We might have not even launched the application, um, and we did a B round. Um, so in the states, you know, all these IPOs were going out and going 10x on the day one, on day one. So a lot of Canadian investors couldn't get access to those deals in the States, and so they were really hungry for tech investment. And so we did a B round that was really unheard of at the time and raised 25 million US, primarily from Canadian investors, in a convertible debenture structure where uh, it didn't set a valuation, it was sort of based on what the IPO price was gonna be, mm. and this is pre-revenue. Right. So, um, so we raised a big B round, and so at that point we had raised you know, 30, 40 million dollars. With uh, plans to IPO in next. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I plans to IPO at some point. You know, we didn't know, we figured sometime over the next few years, because that's what dot-coms do, and you don't necessarily need to be making money, you don't yeah. need to be doing this, you don't need to be doing that. And so, uh, so then we launched the product, and we got a lot of early kudos on it, and we got a lot of downloads, and, and it was starting to take off, but we started to get a sense that that maybe it was not going to be a mass market product. You know, the the folks that were really concerned about their product are or their privacy, their privacy, sorry, yeah. are either people that are really paranoid about their privacy or people that are probably not doing doing legal things, legal or, things, you know, or yeah. have concern about that thing. So I mean, there's there's a very um, passionate early adopter community, right? But then it slowed down your internet. An overall niche market for yeah, this. Yeah, it, it was a niche for that, exactly. Um, but then all those people who said, I care so much about my privacy, um, maybe they do, but not so much that I want to slow down my internet, not so much that I want to pull out a credit card out of my wallet. You know, the bar that somebody needs to get over to get them to buy something is, is pretty significant. You know, I think... My brother said it best at a conference once. You know, you, you, you walk into a room with 100 people and you say, who cares about your privacy? You know, who's really concerned about your privacy? And 98 people will put up their hands. And then you say, okay, who wants a Big Mac for a small DNA sample? And 96 of them will put up their hand. You know, the truth is when people are offered anything, if you want to find your friends, for instance, you know, in, in sort of a, 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 a practical current example, I'm happy if you can connect me with my friends to tell you everything about me. And whether you sell that data or not, I don't really give a shit. Right. 
And so the, the truth is people weren't really concerned about their, um, they were concerned about the pride of, Privacy, but the, the at a cost, uh, to a certain cost. It, but in a, in an abstract way, I'm not willing to make a sacrifice. And if you offer me anything for it, I'm happy to get a viewer rewards card at Metro, so you can track everything I purchase at Metro. Right. You know, I'm happy to give you an Aeroplan card for a few little carrots of, of of discounts on airlines, and track everything you've purchased everywhere. So like people. Um, people are happy to exchange their personal information for small benefits. So I think that's what, that's what we ultimately learned. But we had sort of, as zero knowledge, we weren't just building a consumer product. You know, we had a very broad vision for what privacy was going to be. And so you know, with the money we raised, we had started a lot of, of different business units. We had a lot of different efforts going. We had the, the consumer business going. We had, we had an electronic cash business going. Uh, we had a mobile mobile privacy business going. We had an enterprise privacy business going that was building a database policy, privacy policy management. So we had our finger in every privacy pie out there. If privacy was going to emerge as an industry, we were going to own it. We didn't know what it was, and investors were were willing to fund it. You know, we we were ramping like mad at that point. Still, sort of darlings. We had moved from the offices at I think we had two or three floors at the Cooper Building. But then it moved to another space um, uh, on St. Catherine and Barrie, uh, sort of that big complex de Jardin. And we had, I think, four floors or five floors there, almost 80 or 90,000 square feet. And that was full dot com cliche excess, you know, with the restaurants and the massage rooms and the, the nap rooms and the gym and the sushi lunches. Yeah, it was really before, I mean, it's funny now, and it's sort of, it's either. It's either cliche or it's expected now. Um, but at the time, it was sort of novel and cool. You know, it was really a different way of thinking about things. You know, we didn't have we didn't have titles, and and people came and went when they wanted to. And I mean, it was really sort of um, West Coast Valley culture or startup culture that we really tried to create in in Montreal. And I think we were sort of early in in really embracing that fully. Um, so we were doing all that. And we had an incredibly um, passionate, incredibly committed team of folks that were working for us. You know, we ramped in a year, 12, year, year 15 months, um, from a couple of dozen people to almost 300 um, very quickly. And we had to build a machine that was able to do that. You know, we had full university programs where the first month that everybody came in, they went through a full Sort of onboarding training. Onboarding slash indoctrination. You know, you came out drinking the Kool-Aid um, and changing the world. And we had a lot of people that, you know, people would sleep under their desks. Like it was really, people were passionate about it. People felt really passionate about what the mission was and the team that we had built. And there's a, a ton of brilliant, brilliant people that, that came and, and worked with us and have since gone on to do amazing things. Uh, we ultimately raised our, our C round. And there was a dip in the NASDAQ, the first sort of wobble in the NASDAQ, I think it was in the fall of 2000. And it was getting, uh, it was getting clear that the party might be stopping, the music was going to stop soon. But we were able to close our C round, our last round, right about that time. So we raised another 25 US. Um, and we were, you know, we were sort of running on fumes. There wasn't a whole lot of gas in the tank right. um, when that happened. But then very quickly, it was clear that there was no more money coming, that, uh, 
that uh, the business had to change really quickly. And then the NASDAQ really crashed and it was game over. And at that point, you know, this business that we had built, in business, this thing we had built, you know, um, really had no revenue to, to speak of. We had 300 employees. We had 70 or 80,000 square feet in Montreal. We also, because the VCs and everybody said, you gotta be in the Valley, we had signed a lease for another 80,000 square feet in San Jose. Mm. Um, wow. That was sitting empty. Yeah. Uh, we had, from our all of the investments, the, the money we had raised, we had 125 million in liquidation preferences, approximately. We had uh, another 50 in other kinds of lease debt. So the business was without much revenue and there's no more money and we're burning 3 million a month. So that was, that was sort of the, the situation we were in at the, as the, the dot-com party stopped. And, and you go, it, so it sounds like you, you know, you're getting in trouble at this point from what's going on in the industry, but I feel like it's a little unfair to kind of, if, if anyone gets the impression that what you're building there is similar to what everyone else was doing in the time in, this, in the tech industry, uh, for example, pets.com or anyone just adding .com at the end of their name mm-hmm. just to raise a bunch of money, IPO, 10x, and then cash out. I mean, you guys were actually tackling a real problem here. It's just unfortunate the way you, your timing, in a sense. Would you say it was timing that, that kind of? Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't, we were certainly doing the playbook that was the playbook of the day. You know, take a big, massive problem and spend the money you need to spend to try and tackle it. So that was, that, was, that was clearly the recipe, and that's the game that everybody was playing, you know? Have a bigger vision, there's gonna be more money, spend, spend, spend. And so it was the recipe. We definitely were trying to do something real, but I also think it's a little bit, you know, we, we were participants in that, in that, um, in that thinking, in the way that, that the world was working at that point. Uh, so certainly in retrospect, I, you know, in retrospect, I'm more critical of it. You know, at the time, it was the recipe that everybody was going for. But, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, if you're really trying to focus and build a business, you might have done differently. You know, so it certainly wasn't a, a get-rich-quick scheme, but we certainly, you know, spent a, we kissed a lot of frogs, we spent a lot of money on stuff that, you know, in retrospect, maybe you didn't need to. Um, but yeah, that was that was the recipe of the time. You know, there was capital out there to go and take big risks and try and do big things, and those were the people that were investing in what we were doing. If you know, if we'd had another five years of that party, could we have built a business? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You know, like uh, you know, ultimately, I think the fundamental flaw was really you know what I talked about, or what Austin talked about, with how people feel about privacy. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day. People say they they care about their privacy, but they don't really. Right. They, they well, that's why I'm abstract. I'm curious to hear what you think about this whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. You know, six months ago, that all that went down with Facebook. I mean, it comes out. You have a bunch of people. This whole delete Facebook movement. Maybe there's a little blip in the amount of people that delete their accounts, and then you're right back to square one, right? So yeah. do, would you say that nothing's really changed in the last 20 years since people started, the internet was emerging and people were complaining about this to where we are now? Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Like I, I people, people have this, people care about their privacy in the abstract. And when something happens, they go, they grasp their pearls and go, oh my. But the truth is, you know, Scott McNeely, the ex-CEO of uh, Sun Microsystems, had a great line said, your privacy's dead, get over it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is no privacy, get over it. And that's the reality. I mean, 
with or without Facebook, you know, Equifax and, and these data brokers have so much information about you already. Like, um, yes, people hope that companies respect it. But what they really mean is just don't put it in my face exactly how you're doing it. You know? and I don't so, want to know about it. I don't want to know about it. And so and when they stick it in their face, some of the blatant, horrible breaches, people get upset and they get kafah, but, but it goes away. Goes away, you know. I, I think, you know, Facebook. We'll see. Like I, I you know, at, when Cambridge Analytica stuff happened, I bought a whole bunch of Facebook stock. You know. Yeah. You know, we'll see. Ultimately, I think there's there's Facebook has some real risk that people just turn it off at some point. You know, like if, and I don't think it's just the privacy issues. I think it's a variety of issues um, that if they can't sort of build their brand up, there is risk that. The same network effect that made them grow so quickly can have them shrink quickly. Right. But everybody's like, stop using Facebook. Instagram's great. You know, it's it's it, it. At the end of the day, there's so many engagements that we have with with Facebook. I think it's more likely WhatsApp. that they'll. That's it. WhatsApp and Instagram and, um, you know. But but yeah, I I do think that it is the same thing. I think people say they're concerned about their privacy, but if you can personalize content for me a little bit better. I'm happy if you can make my feed be more about the stuff I'm interested in and build the echo chamber. I'm happy. I'm going to spend time there. Yeah. So we say that we care, but I, but I don't really. You'll think turn a blind doing. side to the rest. Yeah, exactly. people turn a blind side. Exactly. So, okay, so just to, to come back to this massive privacy conglomerate that you're building here, <laughs> uh, and then you know a big crash in the NASDAQ, and, and you realize no more money's coming in, what do you guys do next? It was a really, really tough year, and, and then a, a few years. 2001? Yeah, well, it was really 2001, 2002, 2003. It was sort of like the real um, brutal, brutal time. You know, starting with that first year was, was vicious. Like, we, um, we had to hit the brakes. You know, we were literally burning three, three and a half million US a month. Um, wow. And we had, we had a wall. Like every day we'd go into the office and there was a number on the wall, which is days to death, and um, to keep us all focused on what we had to work on. And so we had to do a bunch of stuff. First, we had to bring the burn down. You know, and so we started what ultimately turned into several, multiple rounds of layoffs. Um, but the first round of layoffs was the toughest. You know, we had people that had moved, moved their families and moved here. We had people that um, were so committed to the business and the mission of what we were doing that they slept under their desks. You know, like it was, it was, um, yeah, it was a, a real, it was a real tight community of folks that had sacrificed a lot and. The first thing we had to do was to bring down headcount um, and try and stop the burn. So I think the the first round of layoffs were about a hundred people or so, um, and so planning that and doing that was incredibly challenging. Uh, you know, I personally did I think forty on that day. Um, it's never fun. Yeah, it's never fun, and it, and it was really really tough. And because you know we were such we were such media darlings. Like the number of you know the articles in the U.S. press, but I think particularly the the Montreal press, we were sort of the Montreal's dot com darling. You know, 
it's, it's as much as they build you up, when there's an opportunity to tear you down, it, it reads just as good, right. you know? And so, yeah. you know, and, and I don't necessarily blame them. You know what I mean? Like we were happy to take the, the hype on our way up, but they were pretty vicious as we started to make changes as well. Like I think the, I remember uh, the day that we did those big layoffs, uh, I think Teleglobe, Bell had just, uh, Bell had just bought Teleglobe for a bunch of money, and they announced a billion dollar write down, and Teleglobe laid off 600 employees. You know? And there was an inch of copy in the business section. But that same day, when, when uh, the layoffs came out, I think we were the top, top fold in the, in the second half, bottom half, and it was something along the line of blood flows red at, at zero knowledge. <laughs> like it was, it was uh, you know, a, a pretty hardcore, um, ruthless tear down. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Red yeah. good. Um, right. So yeah, so it, it was tough. It was tough. So we had to bring the, the 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 cost down, and we sort of went about doing that. You know, we had brought in a number of executives from the valley and, and from the states. Um, they went. We set apart. I don't know if I mentioned it, but my father left for the Frisiani Group after we all did pretty well off the total net. Um, he decided he wanted to get into it, and so the next business was started by by my father, Hammy um, Austin, and myself. So we were the, the founders and the owners of, of Zero Knowledge. Um, and so we set out about trying to first bring our expenses down, uh, secondly, uh, getting our cap table and our balance sheet in order. Like there was no business to save if we couldn't do a recapitalization and, and renegotiate with all the shareholders to have a new cap table. If we couldn't get out of the leases um, or find some way to break those, there was no business to save, so we just shut it down. And so we set it about that. And the third thing is we had to find a business. You know, we had to start actually finding revenue that could get us to cash flow. Otherwise, there's no point either. Right. And so we, I think we had six different business units. At that point, you know, I had the consumer business unit, which was originally the, the anonymous email, anonymous browsing um, product, had been sort of sidelined. We were still trying to make it work, and I was running that. And the sort of next next big hope were around the electronic cash and the enterprise privacy businesses. Um, but we looked at all of those different business units and sort of said, who's got the best chance of, of success? And the consumer business, we, we basically shut down all of them except two um, that had the best prospects for, for getting to cash flow positive. Um, one of them was the consumer business unit and the other was the enterprise. And we. Um, on the consumer business, we had shifted it out totally, like realizing that people don't really care about their privacy. We ripped out all the privacy in crypto, and what was left was, you know, a personal firewall, a password manager, um, an ad blocker. Like those were all the pieces that were there, and so that's what we focused on. You know, what people really cared about was their security. Right. When they said privacy, a lot of times what they meant is I don't want hackers, and so that was sort of the big learning that cost us ten or twenty million bucks to figure out every one of them. Uh, and so we had shifted that product, and then we're working on selling that product through different channels. So we um, didn't have the money to spend on advertising to directly do it, and so we started working through um, private label retail. We did a private label PC, so we'd shipped on HPs. So HP would ship with a free version, and we'd upsell you. Um, and we tried a bunch of different channels, and we, we had started to build some revenue there. I mean, it was like a million or two in revenue, but it was something. And uh, and so ultimately, that was the business that, that emerged. That emerged, we were, yeah. We were able to renegotiate, do a, a recapitalization. We were able to 
um, negotiate out of all of our leases. We were able to sell everything that wasn't nailed down. You know, we had another one of my brothers actually who ran facilities uh, was in charge of liquidating everything. Like we sold desks, we sold printers, like you name it. Yeah. So we got the balance sheet into something survivable. Um, did a recap. We needed to raise a little bit more money, and ultimately it was the most expensive money we raised. It was uh, um, right sort of at the dip as we were transitioning from uh, cash flow negative to cash flow positive. We were short by about three or four months and needed a million bucks. Wow. And uh, we were lucky to find someone, you know, our investors that had invested in the, the C round decided that they were willing to do it, um, but it was expensive. You know, we, we certainly lost control of the business at that point and were sort of washed out or washed down You had no choice. Your backs were against the wall at no this choice. point. And the, and the truth is, like, nobody was investing. There was, this was post.com 2002, 2003. Right. There was not a dollar being invested in tech businesses, um, particularly with you know, a family business that had just blown through 70 million bucks, you know? Um, so, so they, but they, in spite of that, were willing to invest. Right. Um, but when you don't have any other options, it's expensive. This conversation with Hamnet was so interesting and provided so much valuable insight, we just couldn't fit it all into one episode. So stay tuned for part two. To discover more startup founders and companies in Montreal, visit montrealstartups.ca.